0: We are here somewhat between studies, going from the book of Nehemiah to our next book study, which probably will be the Gospel of Luke, to touch on some matters that I think would be appropriate to us to consider. And this morning, I want us to think about worship itself. Well, the title of the message this morning, as you know, is Worship a Biblical Guide for Practice. we'll be looking at uh, a number of different texts here this morning. I want to start by asking you to turn to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, we'll be looking at verses 6 and 7, and then we'll be looking all the way over to Psalm 34. So let's begin reading here. Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And then turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. Well, just a couple of things that are just on the surface that become apparent to us. We notice there in the reading from Psalm 95 that that was written in the plural as it says, Come, let us. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We also see there that there's something of an appropriate response to the creature toward the Creator. And the reason that He gives there for this worship in verse 7 of Psalm 95 is, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So it's right for a creature that he comes to his Creator, that he comes and he bows, and he worships before him. So that here the psalmist calls us to come, worship and bow down, to kneel before the Lord our Maker. It's a right response. And then we saw in, in our reading there in verse thirty-four. I mean Psalm thirty-four. In verses one through three, that here a psalm, David leading this psalm, he begins in the singular, first person singular, I will, word, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast to the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. But then he calls to those who are hearing, hearing His voice, those who are within the range of, of even reading this, is to, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. So there's also the appropriateness in worship, that we come together, we worship together. That's why we come here on Sunday mornings together. We have a, a day and a time designated that we agree to come and to meet together as the people of God. But what directs our worship? Why do we do What we do on any given Sunday morning in the worship time. And in light of our day, why do we not do what we do not do in our worship services? Why do we not do, in fact, what many other churches do in their worship services? We'll be talking some about that thing, those activities. Now, is our Sunday morning worship time, is it something of a hodgepodge of hit or miss activities, hoping we'll do just the thing that people enjoy, that's something of a personal inspiration to us so that when we're all said and done that we'll feel good when we leave this place? Or is there some direction for us to follow? Are there some parameters for us to stay within as we consider what's appropriate for us here on any given Sunday morning? Well, this morning I want you to think about worship in 3 in a light of three things. And again, this is something of a topical message. We'll be looking at a variety of passages of Scripture. We'll be turning to some of these. and those that we did not turn to, I, ask, I hope that you have means to just write them down. If you follow along in your notes inside the, the bulletin here, we're going to look at it in a light of three things. One is that worship is to be serious. Number two, worship is to be scriptural. And number three, worship is to be simple. So let's look at these three ideas as we can as we look to the Word of God as well. Well, first of all, the idea of worship being serious, that shouldn't be anything that's novel to us. That shouldn't be anything of a surprise. That worship is something that we should take very seriously. It should be something that we approach with all seriousness. It is something that we should come into with a, with a spirit of seriousness. It's not to say that we never smile. It's not to say that we'll never have any even humor brought in. But it's not a time that we come and we we'll be frivolous. It's a time that we need to give thought to the fact that we are coming to the very presence of God to take time to consider that we're coming to worship the Lord. It's to be Worship is to be serious because God has revealed in His Word that it's to be deemed as serious. Let's look at a few things. First of all, there is a false worship. When, sheer, when worship is not taken seriously, there is a false worship. first example we said in the Scriptures is in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. The brothers Cain and Abel, they are coming and they are bringing their offerings to the Lord. And like back up with verse 3, "...and it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground." And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of that fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now I know there's some debate, well, why is it that God received Abel's and did not receive Cain's? And some say, well, it's because that Cain's was, was of the grounds and that it was supposed to be a blood sacrifice that was offered unto God. Well, it's not a sacrifice, it's an offering. And the reason that it was not accepted was not because of the offering itself. The reason that it was not accepted was because of the heart of the offerer. This was not an expression of true worship unto God. This was just something that evidently Cain recognized that he ought to do. And so he was doing it. But it was not true worship of the heart. It was an external. It was a mere formality. That on the outside. It was the forerunner of what Isaiah speaks of the children of Israel. In Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen, where There the Lord said, "...because this people, they draw near me with their words, and they honor me with their lip service." But they remove their hearts far from Me. And their reverence for Me consists of traditions learned... And then the NASB adds, by rote. Why was it that Cain offered this offering? Probably something he learned from Adam his father. That we do these things. We make offerings unto the Lord. But it was not a true sacrifice of the heart. It was just something that he was offering to do it, to have it done. And it made no difference whether it be fruit of the ground or an animal. It was not going to be accepted. He could have gone and sacrificed an animal, offered an animal. It would not have been accepted because his heart wasn't right. It was rejected. There is false worship. Also, when when worship is not taken seriously, there is faulty worship. Look with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 10. There's a good book to preach through, Leviticus, right? <laughs> Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. Now Nadab and Abihu, who's that? Well, there were two of the sons of Aaron, which it tells us here, the sons of Aaron, they took their respective firepans and after putting fire, excuse me, <coughs> in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the lord which he had not commanded them and the and fire came out from the presence of the lord and consumed them and they died before the lord what's going on here here we have faulty worship two sons of Aaron who were appointed in the in the role of the priesthood two sons of Aaron who knew what they were specifically to do in making sacrifices and bringing forth the fire. What did they do? It says here in <clears throat> verse 1, after putting fire in they placed incense on it and they offered strange fire before blood. Now, what in the world does that mean? There's a lot of difference of opinion on that. It seems. It just simply means that the source that they used for the fire here was not the fire that was already established there within the place of worship. They got the flame from somewhere else. It was a strange fire. But the bottom line of it is this. Then the first one. Which he had not commanded them. Whatever they did. It was outside the parameters of the commandments of God. and acceptable worship to him. And they violated it. It was faulty worship. It was that which was not commanded by God. So when worship is not serious, there's a false worship. When worship is not taken serious, there can be faulty worship. But when worship is taken seriously, there is fitting worship. There is worship that is correct and that is right. We read verses already in Psalm 95, 6 and 7 that we are to come and to worship and bow down before the Lord our Maker because He is God. It's right. It's right that the creature, us... It's right that we should stop and bow before God. It should be an, an an expression of amazement and wonder that God has made us and the the frailty of our own human existence that we continue to live. What makes this body keep going? Well, the brain keeps going. No way. No, it's not the brain. It's the heart. No the heart. No, it's both. What keeps this thing? What makes it go? What keeps it working? We've never been able to duplicate it. We can't duplicate life in a test tube. Can't do it. It's something we don't we don't fully understand. We don't grasp. And it's right for the creature to come and to bow down and to fall before His Creator, as we saw there. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Psalm 95, verses 7. We also see something else. In one sense, in one sense we can say all of life, all of life is worship. Look with me, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Very familiar text, should be to many of us here. Romans chapter 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or some translations say reasonable, service of worship. Worship service. So there's one sense we say all of our lives, as we come, we offer ourselves unto God. We we present our bodies to Him as our living in a holy sacrifice, acceptable to Him, and it's it's right. It's right. It's fitting for who we are before God as one who is great and who is glorious, and one who has made us that we come. We offer ourselves to Him. Finally, we see in this fitting worship in John chapter 4, verse 24. That in fitting worship, worship is to be in spirit and in truth. Look with me in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. This is the encounter that the Samaritan woman has with Jesus. And she's talking about the worship that the Samaritans experience in their place of worship. And Jesus is talking about the right worship that's been established by God in Jerusalem. But he says this in verse 23, An hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, the issue is not going to be a, a geographical location. It's to be a worship that is in spirit and in truth. For such people, in the the Father seeks to be His worshippers. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And when, when worship is taken seriously, we recognize that. It's not about a place. It's an expression. It's a spiritual exercise. It's a spiritual activity. It's not a geographic. It's not a physical thing. It's spiritual. It's from the depths of our heart. And it's true. It's based upon the truth of the Word of God. It's not based upon the opinions and the preference of men. What was wrong with the worship of the Samaritans? It was a worship that had not been established by God. It was in a place that was not by God. It wasn't based on truth. It wasn't a true worship. It was a false worship. It was a worship that had been set up in contradiction to the Word of God. Worship is to be taken seriously. And when it is, we understand the fitting worship. That there is a proper way to worship. The reality of the person and the nature of God compels that our worship be serious. It's a serious thing to come into the presence of God. And faulty worship as we've seen, when seriousness is missing, has serious consequences. You know, we see the glaring thing with this faulty worship of a Native and Abayu coming, and they offered this strange fire unto the Lord, and they were and they were killed immediately. Maybe we won't see anything quite so drastic in our times, but folks, I'll tell you this that if it's faulty worship, it is not worship that brings honor and glory to God, and it is not. It is not an encounter with Him. It's not true worship. He is not. In it, we take worship seriously. There is a God who is to be worshiped according to his worth, not every human whim. It's serious. Secondly, we see that our worship is to be scriptural. Our worship is to be scriptural. The first question that should be asked the first question of any practice that is brought into a time of corporate worship. The question should be asked, is it scriptural? Is it scriptural? Well, first of all, is it even scriptural that we have a, quote, formal worship service, a gathered gathering time on Sunday morning? Why do we do this? Is this somebody's good idea? Or is there a scriptural reason? Is there a basis that we are even here at all? Well, first thing we'll see is that we are here to worship God together. The existence of this time together is with scriptural foundation. There is scriptural reason for that. It's the pattern, the practice of the early church. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, here at the Pentecost, verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house." They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So first of all, we see that there were those who devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. All those who believe, verse 44, where they were together, verse 46, they were in the the temple, they were house to house, they were having their meals together. Well, that's just a general gathering, but what about just a specific time for worshiping together? What about, let's look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 verse 7 again a pattern here on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread the indication seems to be that there was this set apart time it was this first day of the week why the first day of the week? because we gather in celebration of the risen Christ every day it's right to sing every Sunday it's right to sing Christ the Lord has risen today it's not just an Easter song So they gathered in celebration of the risen Christ on the first day of the week when we were gathered. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He's dealing with problems, but he's also just showing us some, give us a little bit of light here. For in the first place, when you come together as a church... There is a formal gathering together as a church. And Paul recognized that they were having the problems here, but they were still at least coming together as, as a church because it was right. And they should. It was good. So in the midst of addressing problems, he still shows us here that they were those who were coming and gathering together. Look down in verse 20, the same chapter. Therefore, when you meet together, when you meet together, it should be, but it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. <laughs> right? When you meet together... There's to be a gathering together with the people of God. It's right. And it's good. It's scriptural. Look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. <clears throat> Dealing with problems again. Here are the case of church discipline. But in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, there's to be a time when the people who are the church of God come together and worship together. <coughs> so to have a time set aside for worship. A time set aside where we we draw apart from our worldly activities. We come together. It's appropriate. It's biblical. It's a scriptural precept also. Look with me very quickly. In Hebrews chapter 10. Probably the first one that comes to your mind. If I would have asked you, what's our scriptural basis for getting coming together? Again, it's somewhat in the negative here. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 and following. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promises faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, well, how are you going to do that if you're not coming together? Of course, we can do it with email, but they didn't have that then. Verse 24, And not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So we have the, the principle, the precept of just the fact that we gather together the very existence of a worship time. A time set apart that we gather together as, as the church. It's biblical. It's scriptural. There's scriptural reason for that. But what about the elements? What about what we do? What are the scripturally specified elements of worship? First of all, look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here Paul writes to Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Until I come, what? Give attention to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. So what's one of the things that we do? We read Scriptures. It's right. It's part of our worship. Every Sunday morning, we read from a psalm. And is that all we should do? No, I think we should do more. <laughs> I know the habit of some churches and we started this when I was in Missouri. We started reading through portions of the New Testament. every Every Sunday morning, we'd take a chapter and just read it. We started in uh, Hebrews, I think. And we said, well, let's just keep reading. So we just kept going through the general epistles. I think we could do more. Just reading of the Scriptures. To give attention to these things. We visited Beth and I and the family when we were out of town a few weeks ago. Went to Charlotte, North Carolina. We visited the church down there. They probably read four chapters. It was a two-hour worship service. But they probably read four chapters Different places, different people came and they read like a chapter at a time in this worship service. Reading of the scriptures, applicable and appropriate to the worship time. But the reading of the scriptures is part of it. What else? Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four verse two. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with great, with great patience and instruction. For the time will come they will not endure sound doctrine. Preaching assumes there's a listening and a hearing. Part of what we do every, every Lord's Day is to be a preaching of the Word. Now let me just clarify something. 'Cause there was some question raised here a few weeks ago when the Schaefers came. And I had asked Rob to come and to preach the word during the mess during the worship time. To share during Sunday school to come and preach during the worship time. And as it turned out, he shared a little bit about what they were doing, and then Sandy came and Sandy shared her testimony, which I didn't have an issue with that. I don't mind someone sharing their testimony. But I expected that still Rob was going to come in and preach the word, and he didn't do that. So, what had managed that Sunday morning? We did not have the word of God preached, and I want to take responsibility for that, for not clarifying to Rob the role that I was anticipating. And it could be very easily assumed that if any preaching was done on that Sunday morning, that Sandy did it. And that would be, by my view and by the view of this church, completely inappropriate. But we assume that part of any time that we gather for a time of formal worship, there will be the preaching of the Word. Um, it's been the habit the practice of some. Well, what about take a Sunday... We're not, we're not the size we have to worry about this. Let's take a Sunday morning, let's have a choir come do a Christmas cantata and all, or, or whatever the case may be. Or have a group come in, let's have them singing for us. Is that your worship time? That can be a part of it. That can be a part of it but it's not to take the place of the preaching of the Word. The preaching of the Word is to be primary. We hold to that. I hold to that. And we only gather once a week regularly anyway. Wednesday nights where we do a variety of different things right now, we don't get enough preaching of the Word as it is. And I'm going to guard it very tenaciously, much more so than I have, obviously, in the past. And I'm sorry for that. But we hold to the centrality of the preaching of the Word. When we gather together for worship, it's scriptural, it's biblical, it is our obligation to do so. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell, dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And just paralleling, paralleling with this, Ephesians 5 19. <coughs> Ephesians 5 19. Speaking to yourselves or to one another and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So part of our worship time is to be what? The singing of psalms, the singing of hymns, of spiritual songs. Now there are some people who hold the position that all that we should ever sing on any Sunday morning in the time of formal worship is what are songs from the Psalter, from the Old Testament Psalms. And you can buy hymnals that are called Psalters and there's 150 or more songs in there, one for each psalm, and there are some church groups, that's all they ever sing. If it's not from the psalms of the Old Testament, they don't sing it. And obviously, we don't hold that position. I don't hold that position. I think that it, uh, it limits what God is doing, that we live in a, we live in a living church, that we have a, an example and a model, and certainly we can rightly sing the psalms, which we do sometimes. We have scripture songs, but that we do not limit it to that. That we recognize that the church is still is a living church. We do not we do not embrace a hymn, for example, necessarily because it's an old hymn. There are a lot of old hymns out there that aren't very good, but at the same time, nor do we reject a new song just because it's new. There are some new songs being written in our day by people in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that are quite good. You know, we sing courses and things like that that are newer songs. Some of them are not any good. We try to avoid those. We weed through them carefully. We have the obligation and responsibility to make sure that they're sound doctrinally. But it doesn't matter if it's new or old. That That it be sound, that it be scriptural. So there's the place of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And they have the purpose of teaching. That's what Psalm Paul says here. It's The role of teaching one another by doing these things. Now you read and you sing through a hymn like uh, a mighty fortress is our God. You know what? You might learn something in that, in that hymn. You, you sing through, uh, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood, Charles Wesley? you learn something in that hymn. It's a, it's a great hymn of admonition and teaching. That's the role that some of our singing is to have. And it's to be expressed with an attitude of thanksgiving. Giving, as Paul qualifies it there, in both of those letters. So the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, what does that mean that we should never have solos? No, it doesn't. <clears throat> the emphasis is on congregational singing, but it's not exclusively congregational singing. But if there's to be special music in the sense of solos, duets, trios, that there are criteria that they should meet that's the same of anything else that's offered. It needs to be sound. It needs to be something that is of edification to all the body. And there's the obligation of anyone who would stand in the position and to sing for us or sing unto the Lord. And we listening is this to be a person whose life that we can look at and, and recognize that they are a godly person. Just as I was hoped that you that you would stand each Sunday and you see that you don't look up here and think there's Randaper preaching and man, I just know all these these terrible things in his life he hadn't dealt with. You know, there's the, the sense of where we have a, a responsibility to live our lives above reproach if we're going to be in the position of, of leading in the position from being in the front, the pulpit where the case may be. So singing. We have the reading of the scriptures. We have the preaching and hearing of the word. We have singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. First Timothy chapter two. Begin in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So there's to be the offering of prayers. Those things that we do, you say, well... You talking about church here? Yeah, I think so. Look over in chapter three, verse fifteen or fourteen. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I delay, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul is writing this letter to Timothy saying, This is how you conduct yourself in the context of the church. One of the things you do is that you pray. So we have times of prayer, appropriately so. We have specific matters of prayer. We pray, I don't always mention it by name, but always before us is we pray for the leaders of our country, President Bush, that we might live a godly and a tranquil life, a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So there's a role of prayer. And then, very quickly... The fifth element that we have is the administering of the ordinance of the sacraments. Baptism and communion. It's to be done in the context of the church. It's to be an expression of worship. It doesn't mean that we, whenever we have baptism, because the Scripture does speak of baptisms that took place that were not in the gathering of the church. But what I'm saying here is it is appropriate. It is appropriate. And I think the norm that baptisms do take place in the context of the church. And of course, communion is the church gathered together, as Paul gives us there. We read on a monthly basis from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. So we have reading the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word, singing of psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, prayer, and then the administering of the ordinance of the sacraments. What else? That's it. Now, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait just a minute here. I know a lot of folks that are doing a whole lot more than that. What about this churches that are doing drama, and dance? I'm not even going to give a demonstration of that. <laughs> that could be ugly. <laughs> now, what about that? I mean, isn't Isn't it right that we be all things to all men, and that we express ourselves in a way that is appropriate to our day and our age, and one of the mediums, we're a visual visual people, we live in this day and this age of television, and we're used to seeing things, so why not bring in drama teams, and why not have dance and all this kind of stuff that's being introduced? Let me read something to you from a little book. The name of the book is called The Church by Edmund Clowney. And he just makes an interesting point here because there's, that sounds kind of good. But listen to this. In New Testament times, drama was staged in the major centers of the Hellenistic world and was immensely popular. Drama is not new. This, this concept of this visual age that we've got to let people see something acted out, that's not a new concept. Paul was familiar with that. It was very popular in his day. The apostles, however, delivered the urgent gospel message in direct teaching and preaching, not through the indirect communication of dramatic performance. We recognize the need for direct communication in situations of supreme seriousness. An American president, would not air a dramatic skit to appeal for national support in a declaration of war. You know, this idea that we've got to do something different to reach the masses, it misses the point. Paul had alternative ways of expressing the message in his day that were very well accepted. But he appealed to preaching and teaching because that was the means that was ordained by God. The foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of the means. The foolishness of the message. The foolishness of preaching. So that's the reason we don't bring in these things. You say, well, there's not ever any place for that? Yeah, but it's not in a Sunday morning worship service, a formal worship sign. You know, if we decide, let's have a Sunday night, somebody we would respect <laughs> carefully. Sunday night, somebody come and they sing. Just have a concert, whatever you want to call it. Can we do that? Yeah, I think we can do that. But it's not going to take place on Sunday morning in place of preaching the Word. But we want to set aside a Sunday night, let's do this. Hey, let's do this. i got no problem with that. But we're not going to say this is a time of our worship, our formal worship time on Sunday evening in that setting. If we ever go to a Sunday night service, which I'm fine with that too, We have preaching the word. We may choose on occasions to have some Sunday nights to to break away from the formality of a worship time. Generally Sunday night worship services are more informal anyway. But if it's going to be a worship service, a time this is a time that we expect and encourage the saints of God to gather together for worship. We're not going to bring this other stuff in. We're going to say, all right, this Sunday night we're going to do this instead. Fine. But it's not going to happen on Sunday morning. This Sunday morning, we're going to protect now, with these five things reading the scriptures, preaching the hearing of the word, singing of psalms, prayer, and the ordinances. So be protected. <clears throat> now, we're going to say we can't do baptisms very well, at least baptism by immersion. We have to go somewhere else and do that, and that's fine. But we make the most of what we are. Listen, we need to beware. <clears throat> I'm sorry, there's one more thing I want to share with you. This is from a book. Uh, by James Bannerman, the Church of Christ, published by Banner of Truth Trust. He says this, Christian charity and liberty of conscience mandate that the church not do anything, even something indifferent in itself, that would wound the conscience of another. True love for the brethren insists upon a minimalist approach to worship. In other words, it's not about how much we can cram in here. Listen, let's stay within the parameters of what Scripture tells us is clear, and let's operate there out of love for. Our... I mean, who do you know is going to have a problem with the reading of the Scriptures? Anybody here going to promise my reading Scriptures? Who in here? Who do we know in the context of worship will have a problem with the preaching, the teaching of the Word, or singing, or prayer, or baptism, or communion? Who's going to have a problem with that? Well, no one should. If they're a child of God. You start getting to other elements. Who's going to have a problem with drama? Uh, here's the problem you could potentially run into. You bring something like that to a worship service. Someone is there, and you're saying, you're saying to them by bringing that into a worship service, you're saying to them, you are expected to enter into a spirit of worship with this activity going on. And you've got a person who can't do it. you violated their conscience. You've got a person who's sitting there saying, I'd like to try, but I can't worship with dance. See, there's no reason to bring it in. It's not in the scriptures. Stay within the, the guidelines here of these five things, you're safe. You don't have to worry about your brother, you're safe. So it's not how much we can cram in and let's bring something else new in. What's the problem there? The problem is that we are on, on so much of a, a basis of where we're trying to appeal to the natural man rather than the spiritual man. And the worship service becomes more and more of let's do something that that lost people will enjoy. And that's not the purpose of a worship service. Time for worship is reserved primarily. If, if the laws come in and they're edified or they're convicted, praise God for that. But if if we come together, we gather as the church for the ministry of edification one to another and the worship of God together. The worship service is not, first and foremost, an evangelistic service. It's for the people of God. And so we... Cringe to this seeker sensitive mentality. I cringe when I go out and when I look at how our we define our worship services not by the God which we worship, but by what we're doing. And I just want to think, how can I counter this modern worship? What can I put on a sign out here? I just want to put something that says God centered worship. (laughs) That's all I want to put. So why don't we do some of these things? Well, just simply because it's not the Scripture. We need to beware of the additions and the traditions and the inventions of men, such things as the Mass. Such things as highly highly liturgical religious pomp where there's no biblical basis for it. I'm not talking necessarily against what would be the high church services, but I am talking about liturgy that is empty of any reality of worship and liturgy that has no scriptural basis for it. Only the scriptural elements are necessary for worship. That's all you need. Read the scriptures, preaching, singing, prayer, ordinances. That's all you need. Simple, which is where we're going in just a moment. We need to beware also of the omissions and the substitutions. You know, it is, I mean, there's the appeal. There's a book out but this guy. Sad to say, he's a, by a respected publisher, <laughs> Presbyterian and Reform, that he makes a defense of things like drama in the plays of preaching. And I say there is no defense. Some have called, used what they call, let me just introduce this terminology in case you ever hear it again, which you probably will. The word that some people use is called the regulative principle. The regulative principle. The regulative principle is this when, we come, when it comes to corporate worship, what is not commanded in Scripture is forbidden. That's simple. That's the regulative principle. Now, not everyone holds to that, obviously. There are some who hold to what is called the normative principle. The normative principle says this. If the scripture does not forbid it, it's allowed. Big difference. Big difference. As long as I'm here <laughs> pastoring this church on Sunday mornings, we are going to live and abide by this term called the regulative Principle. So, what does that mean? Does that mean we can't do this? We can't do that? It means maybe we won't do some things. But we we'll just evaluate well, does this fall under reading of the scriptures, preaching hearing the word, singing of psalms or hymns, whether it be individuals or groups, prayer, administering ordinances? What or about sharing the testimonies? Is there a place for that? Yeah, I think there is. It's called admonishing, and exhorting, and encouraging one another. Yeah, that's fine. What about even taking time for prayer request. Yeah, it's part of being preparing for prayer. So it's not like you go to this. Listen, all right, we're outside here, sir, but we do have a guide, and we're not going to operate operate outside this, and we're not going to bring in something to take the place of these things. There's no substitutes. We're going to guard that then there's another principle, just for your information, it's called the Inventive Principle. The Inventive Principle states this, that the church is free to invent whatever it wills as a part of worship. And guess who abides by that? Let me spell it out for you. M-A-S-S, Mass, is an invention of the church. That's the Roman Catholic position, because the Roman Catholic position deems that the church has authority and is over the Scriptures, rather than the Scriptures have authority over the church. So they're free to invent what they want to invent, what they deem is appropriate and necessary. For the sake of what we do here, just deem it that, we're, that you're going to be safe. <laughs> as we, as I apply, and, and Neil and I together, we'll apply the, the regulative principle. Uh, if it's not commanded in Scripture, then we will not do it. And again, as, was, as I read just a moment ago, out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we take the minimalist approach. So there, won't be, there shouldn't be anything in our, in our worship service that's, that's an issue of, of somebody causing my brother to stumble. And I'm sad to say that I've been in churches where the attitude of the contemporary worship mentality was, this is what we're going to do, this is what we need to do, and if you're an old fogey and you can't get with the program, that's your problem. And what they're doing is they're offending the conscience of their brothers in Christ and what an offense against God that is. We'll not do that. So that a person could come into this in this place in this worship service whether they be a senior saint of 70 years or older or whether they be a young saint, a teenager or whatever, whatever the case may be, but if they're a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ, they can worship because these elements will be here. And they're not going to have to weed weed through and wade through a bunch of things wondering, man, is this right or not? So out of love for our brothers and love for one another, we take the minimalist approach. And finally, worship should be simple. It's a deliberate simplicity of the elements commanded in Scripture. I mean, that's it, folks. Five things. Reading the Scriptures, preaching, the, hearing the Word, singing the Psalms, prayer, the ordinances... It's simple. You can do that. You can go to Papua New Guinea. And they can do this. You don't have to have PowerPoint and a set of drums and all this other stuff. You know what? Now I'm not going to put PowerPoint and a set of drums in the same classification. I think that they're both matters of indifference, however. You know that's the oh you gotta you gotta have PowerPoint, man. If you're gonna preach effectively, you gotta cast your verses up on the video. In your songs, you put the books down. You got to have all this modern. You not to have that. And those are a matter of indifference. If you got it, fine. If you don't, that's fine. But it's simple, simple worship. It's Godward. There's the principle of exaltation that is God-centered. It's directing hearts and minds toward God. The Scriptures, of course. Can you read the scriptures or write and in any way come come away with anything other than the fact that God is exalted? The reading of Scriptures are God centered. It directs our hearts. So why read the scriptures as we gather together? To direct our hearts and our minds Godward. Where else are you going to go that's anything more God centered than to the scriptures? And the prayer. Prayer is God focused by its nature. We pray and you're talking to God. Expressions of thanksgiving, as Paul mentions there. Singing, the pattern of the Psalms or what? God-glorifying, focused on God's greatness, God's grace, and His mercies to sinners. In the sacraments, they testify of Christ's redemptive work. But man, we're, God, will we have the principle of exaltation. Man, we have the principle of edification, seeking to build up one another. That's why we gather. We're a body. We're members one of another. We're seeking to edify, to build one another up. So we come. We come to worship, and we we don't come with an insistence upon a style or an activity that's distracting or that's offensive to a brother. We don't insist on those things. And those who insist that you've got to be doing worship this way and this day to reach this age, say you're wrong. You're wrong. You don't have to. You can. And if you've got a congregation that it's all young yuppies and, and that appeals to them all, great. But I'm going to tell you, you're going to admit reaching to a lot of people because of what you're doing. And I don't want to do that. Man, I don't want anybody who's a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ who wants to worship Him in spirit and truth. They can come in this place and they can worship and they can feel right at home. And I'm not going to sit there and wonder, oh man, I wonder if this is... You know we're doing. It. I wish we weren't doing this. And <laughs> there, you not know, worry about it. If we go by the scripture, it prioritizes responsibility to the saint over the unbeliever. Did you know that? We have a priority, a higher obligation in worship one more one to another over that. To the unbeliever. We are to prefer one another. We have a higher obligation one to another than we do to the unbelievers out there. Otherwise, you communicate to the world they treat you better when you're on the outside than they do when you get on the inside. And that's not the message we want to convey. The message we want to convey is they treat you well when you're outside but man, when you come in, when you become a part Can not any true, regenerate man worship God with these very simple elements? Is anybody going to be hindered from worship because of reading the Scriptures, preaching the Word, singing of Psalms, prayer? Is that going to cause you to have difficulty worshiping? I think not. I told you earlier that the first question of any practice in worship is, is it Scripture? But there are some additional questions to consider acceptable, for appropriate worship? First of all, is it first and foremost God-centered? Does it direct my heart Godward? We just need to be careful the songs we pick. Um, number two, is it edifying to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Are my brothers being encouraged? Or are they built up? Humility and love require that I cannot insist on anything that is an obstacle to my brother or my sister can't insist that it be done this way if it's a possible obstacle or stumbling block to a brother, sister, in Christ. We can worship without much of what modern church services become insistent about. Often an effort to appeal to the unchurched and sadly to appeal to those who are churched but are unconverted. There's the other problem. Some are determined to appeal to those who are just unchurched altogether. And some have the problem with they've got so many people that are unconverted inside. They're trying to appeal to them to keep them. If you can't keep people with the reading of the scriptures, the preaching of the word, and singing and prayer and the ministry of the ordinances, you need to close. Or they need to go. See, there are many things that are quite appropriate that we do. I listen. I listen to songs in my van, I listen to songs in my home, Christian radio, that are absolutely inappropriate for a worship service. They weren't written for a worship service. Now some of them are. Boy, you can take some of them, they're good praise and courses and those things, and you can bring them right in and incorporate them right into a worship service, no problem. There's a lot of them out there. They're fine. They're good. And they're good Christian songs. I'd rather be listening to that than country music or rock or whatever the case may be. But they're, they're not appropriate for worship. For corporate worship. And we need to be discerning. So what do we conclude? Worship is to be serious. It's to be serious because God is God. And we are His creatures. Worship is to be scriptural. It's to be scriptural because it is must be right. There is faulty and there is false worship. We have the Scriptures to guide us. What God requires of Scripture, He gives to us in His Word. And third, it is to be simple. Simple that we might be unencumbered, that we might be undistracted, and that we might not be a hindrance to our brother or sister in Christ who's come to worship as well. But God, give us grace to, to apply and live by these as we worship each Lord's Day. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. Lord, truly is a privilege to worship. And we confess that there have been those times that we've come here and we've done all these things and we've not worshiped. So we need You. Make us a worshiping church, committed to Your Word. Oh, that we would delight in the things of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.